Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to mystory@toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. Well, the footage that you have seen in that video is from the village of Nazareth in Israel. Had the privilege to be there in January. And uh, in particular, it's at the Church of the Annunciation, which is a church that's been built at the site where uh, history would say, uh, um, or you know, they would, they, would, they would propose, that is where the angel appeared to Mary and told her that she would be the mother of the Lord. And it uh, was an interesting opportunity to be there and to see that village um, and uh, just to kind of get an idea of that place that we read about in Scripture. And when we were there, we began to talk about what it meant that Jesus came in human form. We began to talk about his parents. And, and one of the conversations that we had when we were there was about Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. And there were some things that struck me as we were having that conversation that I don't think I'd really thought of before. And on this day, on Father's Day, it's good for us maybe to take some time and talk about Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, that we read about in the Gospels. And as we begin, I'm indebted in some of these thoughts to Mark Turnage. Mark's written a book called Windows into the Bible by Mark Turnage. If you are looking for maybe a resource that'll help you to understand a little bit more of the Jewish background and history and cultural details as you read through scripture, uh, it gives cultural and historical insights from the Bible for modern readers, Windows into the Bible, I would highly recommend it. Mark was the guide that led the tour um, that we took to Israel. Uh, and uh, we are taking a trip in January of this coming year. Folks from Calvary that are going, there's still some spots available. If you're interested, you can check that out at holylandsstudies.org. You just search for the Calvary Church trip from Mommy. Uh, you can get all the information there. We'd love to have you join us. There's a few spots that are still there. But today on Father's Day, I want to talk to you about Joseph, the father of Jesus. Now, this message is going to be applicable to our dads. I think there's some things that we'll talk about that will really apply to dads. But if you're not a dad here today, please don't check Facebook or pull out Candy Crush right now. I think this will appeal to all of us. There's going to be things here that are going to be relevant for all of our lives as we talk about Joseph. The reality is we don't know much about him. When you read through the Gospels, there's not much that we know about Joseph. One of the things that we can look at as we look at history is we can see that he truly was just kind of a man of his times. Now, they, they can't do this research much on, the, on female names because of the way records were kept in the first century. But they can go back and they can look at the most popular names for males in Jewish homes in the first century. What do you think is the number one most popular name for a Jewish male in the first century? It was... No, it was Simon. Simon was, uh, was the number one name. Number two was... See, not as many of you will bite for the second one, right? <laughs> Fool me once, shame on me, right? Joseph was the second most popular name for a male in the first century. And we don't know much about Joseph or his life, really. I mean, he only appears in the birth narratives. If you look at it, he only appears in the story of Jesus as a child. We see him in Matthew. We see him in Luke in those early chapters. But the last time we see him is when Jesus is 12 years old. If you remember, the family goes to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Do you remember that story? And Jesus disappears, and they don't know where he is, and they find him in the temple after three days. That's the last that we see any mention of Joseph made. And so the, the fact is, we have to assume that he died somewhere between the time that Jesus was 12 and that he was 30. That before Jesus started his public ministry, somewhere Joseph passed away. Because we don't see him mentioned again. We see Jesus and his mother mentioned at the wedding at Cana when Jesus begins his ministry. But Joseph is not there. 
And so we're left to assume that somewhere during that time frame, he passed away. We don't know much about him. Here's just a few references that we see. Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. It says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So there we just get a little kind of biographical detail from him, genealogical detail of who his father was, who he was married to. But we don't know much about him. We see the same thing in Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought... Of Joseph. And so we're led to believe that Joseph's role in Scripture is kind of that he's just, you know, he's just kind of Jesus' foster father. He was just the guy that was kind of there. Mark Turnage in his book argues for this point, and I would agree with him, that Joseph could arguably be the most overlooked character in the story of Jesus. We fail to recognize how critically important his role was. We often think of him as just that, that carpenter who was a pretty good dude, yeah, he was a good guy. He happened to be engaged to that awesome lady, Mary, who was chosen to be the mother of the Lord, and he was smart enough not to fight God. But beyond that, we just kind of think he's a pretty good guy. Don't know much about him. Oh, we do know that he was the one who led the donkey because we've seen it on Christmas cards, right? That's about it. It's about all we know about him. But I would contend and I would propose to you that there's so much more to the story of Joseph and that basically he wasn't chosen by accident. He wasn't just lucky to be connected to Mary. He wasn't guilty by association. He didn't just marry out of his league. Although we don't know many facts about him, when we piece together what we do know, we can assume some things that we find to be true throughout Scripture about those who God chooses to use in a special way. And I would propose to you that God specifically chose Joseph to be the father to his earthly son. This is important. In fact, this is where I want to land for us today. I want, to, I want to talk about what it means to be chosen by God, to be the kind of person that God will choose to use. Because I don't think Joseph was just some random dude. For some reason, God chose him. And when we look at some details about his life, I think we'll realize that there's some principles there, some characteristics that you and I can apply to our lives so that we can be chosen by God as well. Doesn't everybody want to be chosen at some point? I mean, do you remember when you're in school? You raise your hand when you think you know the answer or if somebody's volunteering to do something. I remember, like, if you ever had to take a trip outside of the classroom, weren't you raising your hand? Get me out of here. Teacher, teacher, teacher. You want to be chosen. You want to be chosen to be on the team. You want to be chosen for a date. If there's something special, everybody wants to be chosen. It's a wonderful feeling. And for whatever reason, God chose Joseph. And I believe that God is still choosing people today. In fact, I believe that he wants to choose us, all of us, right where we are, to do work for him, to accomplish his purposes, so that our lives would be fulfilling and effective for him and his kingdom, that we can be used in our families and in our jobs and in our homes and in our church and in our community. All of us want to be used by God. We want our lives to count for something. We want to make a difference. And especially, dads, I would challenge you on Father's Day that inside of each one of us is this desire, God, use me to do what you've called me to do. So looking at Joseph's life, let me give to you, and I'm sure there could be more, but let me just give you three characteristics of people who God chooses to use. Three characteristics of people who God chooses to use. Kind of based on the details that we know about Joseph's life, let's look at why it was that maybe God was able to use him and chose him. The first is this, number one, God chooses people 
who work hard. God chooses people who work hard. If I asked you what you know about Joseph, we might not know much, but I think many of us would be able to say, I know that Joseph's occupation was that of a carpenter. And we know that, we kind of recognize that. If you've seen pictures, you've probably seen him. It looks like he's in somebody's garage working on a table, right? It's kind of just the image that we have. We know he was a carpenter because that's how he was known in his community. Look at this, Matthew chapter 13, verse 54. Coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? They asked, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So we know that his job, his role, his occupation was that of a carpenter. What we probably don't understand is what that really meant in that day and time. When we think of carpenter, we think of just somebody who works with wood. But it meant so much more than that. The word for carpenter was tecton, which is the same word from which we get the, the, the English word technician. And the idea was not just somebody who works with wood. In fact, if you've ever been to the Middle East, you know that most of the buildings aren't built with wood, they're built with stone. So his main uh, resource that he worked with was probably stone, and it was more than just him building things. If you were a carpenter, that meant you were the architect. You were the one who would design the building. You would design how it would be built and what it needed to be. You weren't only the architect, but you were also the general contractor. You had to make sure that the whole thing got done. And then you probably did the building yourself, and then somebody also had to craft the furnishings that went inside. You know who did that? <laughs> the carpenter. So the carpenter was more than just some guy with a hammer. He was so much more than that. He was architect, general contractor, builder. He built the furniture. And we oftentimes think of Joseph as just this guy, but carpenter was so much more. In fact, if you go back and you look at the early Jewish literature of the first century, you read that carpenters were considered artisans and regarded as particularly learned. If a difficult problem arose, people in the village would ask, listen to this, here's what people would ask, is there a carpenter among us or the son of a carpenter who can solve the problem for us? So Joseph wasn't just some guy in a shop with some wood. He was someone who was regarded as learned and accomplished, someone who had worked hard to get to that point, and that's what I think I want you to understand here, that Joseph would have had to work hard to get to this place in his life. He was a hard worker. And I know this may be a bit of a stretch, but there's a principle here that I think is both scriptural and is true for us today. God chooses people who work hard. If you want to be chosen by God, if you want God to use you, then understand this, he's not looking for people who will mail it in. He's not looking for folks who just see how they can skate by. God chooses people who work hard. How you do your work will determine how God uses your work. How you do your work will determine how God uses your work. Maybe think of it this way. Do you remember elementary school? when you would make maybe an art class or in your, your classroom, you would make some kind of picture or a project or some kind of craft or something. Let's say there's 25 people in your elementary class. Your teacher would take all 25 pictures and they'd put them up on the hallway so that when you walked by, you would see them. Do you remember that? And you'd walk by and you'd be like, oh, there's my picture. It's really sorry compared to Sally's, but there's my picture. And they would all be up there. When you get to high school, the rules change though. When you get to high school and you do a project, everybody's project doesn't go up on the wall. They take the very best ones and they put them in a display case, right? They focus on the ones that were done really well. 
Sometimes it's because a kid was just super talented. Usually it's because somebody worked hard to see that thing done. And those were the things that are put on display. And we think that we live our lives with this elementary school mindset that no matter what I do, it's all gonna get up on the wall when the reality is if you don't do a good job with something, it's not gonna be used. Isn't that true? And the same works in God's kingdom. God is looking to use those who will work hard, who will put the effort in. How you do your work will determine how God uses your work. Here's some principles about work that we see in Scripture. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We looked at this several weeks ago when we were talking about worship, but, but understand this, work is worship. The things that you do, whether it be in your home, on the job, in your family, in school, whatever it is that God has put in your hands to do, what you would call your work, your work is worship. And God is to be glorified and honored by the things that you do. If I want God to be glorified in my life, and so many times we say that we do, I want God to be glorified in my life. I want people to see Jesus in me. If that's true, we need to not just say it, we need to do it, and we need to show that even in our work even if we feel like what we do does not matter, even if we don't like what we do, we need to recognize that our work is worship. How do you do that? I would propose to you that when you go to work tomorrow morning, that you invite Jesus to go with you. Now, I would encourage you, don't talk to him like he's your imaginary friend. That will freak people out. (laughs) But keep in mind that he's right there with you. That as you do your job, He's watching what you do. And I don't think he's watching like this. I don't think he has his heavenly clipboard and he's just ready to do an evaluation. I don't think he's examining things. I don't think he's auditing your work. You know what I think he's doing? I think he's checking out to see all the places where you give glory to him. Oh, that's awesome. Because as you do your work, you're worshiping me. You know, when you do that, you show people my character and my love and my grace. You show me through you as you do your work as worship unto me. What if we viewed it in that way? It would be a powerful thing. Paul says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it so that he will be honored. On on three occasions in my life, I I was thinking about this, and I can remember, on three occasions, I've been asked by a friend to write an endorsement for a book. I've got friends that have written some books, and they've said, hey, would you would you write an endorsement for this book? You know what the endorsements are? The endorsements are, you know, when you first open a book, there's several pages that, that have paragraphs and names of people who tell you how great this book is, even though they haven't read it. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's an endorsement. And I've had friends say, hey, would you write an endorsement for my book? And each time I've had to go, do I want to do this? I mean, before I put my name on this thing, do I really want to endorse this? Is it something that I want to be connected to? Do I want somebody who might know me to open up this book and go, oh, Chad said it's good, maybe I'll read it. Because when you put your name on something, it means you're saying, look, I, I, I approve of this. Paul says whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Are you sure that your work is something that God would want to put his name on? Are you sure that what you do is something that gives him glory and that he'd be proud of? Does he look at your work, whatever it is that your hands find to do, in your home, in your school, on your job, in your hobbies, whatever it is that you do, are you just mailing it in? Are you doing your best? Does he look at it and go, man, I'll put my name on that. She does a good job. He did good work. Would God call you up and say, nice job? Would he put his name on that? 
Because whatever you do, in word or deed, we are to recognize that our work is worship. Scripture goes on to talk about work even in a, in a different way. Look at this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11 through 13. And, and, and remember, in, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is writing to a church and people in the church who in many ways had become lazy. And he says, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. A couple of things that that I think are good for us to note here out of that passage of scripture, that you are disrupted and distracted when you do not work hard. When you you take your efforts and energy away from things and doing things the best you can, what happens is you become disruptive, your life becomes disruptive to others, and you're distracted from what God would have you to do. I love his language there. He says they're not busy, they're busy bodies. It's interesting, whenever we aren't busy, we're prone to get into trouble. Isn't that true? If you don't believe that, then maybe you've never parented a preschooler. Okay? I can remember times when my kids were little that I'd be in one room, they'd be in another, and as long as I could hear the screams coming from the other room, I knew things were okay. Trouble started when they got quiet. Isn't that true? You'd be sitting there, and all of a sudden you go, I haven't heard anything for a while. I better go check. And you walk in the other room, and the furniture's ripped apart, and there's a fire over here, and there's blood on the wall, and you're like, what happened in here? As soon as it's quiet, that's when the devil enters your children, is in that moment. When they're not busy, they become busy bodies. Guess what? We don't grow out of that. I know people who just need something to do because they're not busy, so they're in everybody else's business, or they're stirring up trouble, or they're disruptive, and the truth is, I get the same way. You know the best thing for me, if I'm gonna be used by God, is to be willing to work hard because you are disrupted and distracted when you do not work hard, and remember this, the reward of work is in the investment and not the immediate. The reward of work is in the investment and not the immediate. Paul says, never tire of doing what is good. Why do I not work hard sometimes? Because I feel like I've got nothing to show for it. What good is it doing? How is this helpful to anybody? So many times we give up in our work or in the efforts we go to because we don't see an immediate response. We want a return on the investment right away. And the reality is, Paul says, look, don't give up. Don't tire of doing what is good. The reward in this work is not in what you see right now. Sometimes it's the investment that you're making in someone else's future or in your future or what's gonna happen in the future. Because the reality is this. If you're not working hard in this place, how can God entrust you to work hard in that place? Many times I go, look, I don't want to be here, so because I don't want to be here, I want to be there, I don't want to be here, so because I don't want to be here, I won't work here. And then God says, you want to work over there, but if you're not working here, how can I trust you over there? Does that make sense? So the reality is, if I'm not willing to work hard, how can God choose to use me where I want to be if I'm not willing to work hard where I am? I've got to choose to make an investment even if the return on that investment is not immediate. What difference does it make? Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. Do you see someone skilled in their work? They will serve before kings. They will not serve before officials of low rank. See somebody good in their work? They will be blessed. 
God will give them a place of opportunity. Here's the reality. You do more good when you are good at what you do. You do more good when you are good at what you do. So work hard. Let your work speak for itself. Let others see you through your work, believing that your hard work will put you in a place that God can use you. And dads, let me encourage you with this. You are the primary teacher of this to your kids. I'm I'm really thankful for a dad who taught me how to work hard. I'm, I'm pretty aware that I probably haven't always lived up to his expectations, but my dad was a hard worker. My dad died uh, 20 years ago. It was 20 years in April that my dad died after a two-year battle with cancer. And I look back, and uh, I am forever thankful that one of the opportunities I had in my life was to work for my dad. My dad over, oversaw, he supervised all the maintenance operations for a school district. And so a couple of times during my college years, I was able to work for a season for my dad as a custodian in a high school. So my dad not only taught me how to clean windows and to scrub toilets, bless God, um, <laughs> but he also taught me how to work hard. I watched how to lead others through the example of my dad. I remember one time we were, we were driving home after, after, we would drive together back and forth, and we were driving home after one day's work, and he was driving, I was sitting over here, and I, I acknowledged to my dad that the gentleman that I was working with, that they knew how to take a 15-minute break and stretch it into 30 minutes. They were good at that. And he said, yeah. He said, don't learn that from them. And then he talked about the value of working hard, and it stuck. And I'm so thankful for that. Dad's your example will make a difference in the life of your children. And there have been times in my life when I've known that I haven't been the smartest and I haven't been the ones with, with the most ability or the, the best candidate, but the reason that God was able to use me was simply just because I showed up and was willing to work. It makes all the difference. If you want God to choose to use you, you need to learn to work hard. Here's the second thing, number two, if you want God to use you, God chooses people who seek him. Number two, God chooses people who seek him. Go back to the example of Joseph, Matthew chapter one, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. Look at that phrase there. Was faithful to the law. Some Bible versions might say he was righteous or he was devout. Remember what that says there. Because he was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. What Matthew gives to us there is an important detail about Joseph describing him as righteous or devout or faithful to the law. Linguistically and culturally, Matthew's description of Joseph does not merely identify him as a good guy. Instead, that's actually a, a term that was used throughout Jewish literature of someone who knew the scriptures, who would teach others. Oftentimes, that person would be considered a learned sage. So Joseph wasn't just some guy He was somebody who had studied God's word, someone who others looked at as a spiritual leader and would be responsible for teaching others in particular. He was responsible for teaching the scriptures to his children. Joseph wasn't, again, just some guy with a hammer. 
He was someone who had gone to great lengths to seek God and to know him and know his word and live it in his life. Now that's a really important detail. Beyond that though, it wasn't just head knowledge. Look what else scripture tells us about Joseph and Mary. Luke chapter two, verse 22. It says, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. They left where they were at and went to Jerusalem. Now, the law said that they should do that, but many people in their culture would disregard those things. It was expensive. It took time. It was difficult to do that, but they knew that that's what God's word required, and so they chose to do it. That was the pattern of their life. Look at this, Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival, the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. See, many people would just kind of just try to skate by on their spirituality, not just in the first century, but even today. And Mary and Joseph said, look, seeking God is more than just what you know. Seeking God is a matter of action. If you're gonna seek God, then you have to choose to take the steps to do it. You have to determine that you will make it a priority in your life. For Mary and Joseph, they did not simply try to get by. They worked hard to honor God and to keep his commands. I wanna challenge you that if you're gonna seek God in your life, and especially mom and dad, this is a great example for us, you need to put things into action. It means that you're gonna be willing to, to realign your priorities to line up with God's the things that his word says, the things that you know are important to him, that you're willing to make choices and decisions that will show your family and in the steps of your life that you will align your priorities to God's priorities, that you'll live those out, that you'll pass those along to other people and your friends and your family and other generations. And sometimes, you know what seeking God means? It means that you just show up, not just for church, but that you show up with God's word and you say, God, I, I wanna hear from you. God, I need to know what you have to say to me. Sometimes it's just as simple as as you go through the daily decisions of your life, whether it's in your car or on the job or in your relationships with others, that you're aware enough to say, God, I need you to lead me. God, I need you to guide me. I'll tell you, there's a lot of times when I don't know what to do or what to say. And I've just got to whisper a little prayer that says, God, I need your guidance. I'm seeking you. He comes through. Have you found that to be true? Sometimes we just need to seek him. Here's what his word says. Psalm 119.105 says, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Proverbs 6.23, Solomon's writing about God's commands and he says, for this command is a lamp, this teaching is a light, and correction and instruction are the way to life. The principle is this, when you seek God, you find direction for every area of your life. When you choose to seek God, in doing that, you find direction not just spiritually, but you'll find it in every area of your life. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm more and more aware all the time that I need that direction. We live in a world that desperately needs direction from God. I think last Sunday when we sat in church, we had no idea of the tragedy that had taken place the night before in Orlando. Senseless loss of lives. And not just what we see in the headlines, but it comes out in our politics and in the way our culture's changing and what we see globally around the world. And we're reminded over and over again that globally, nationally, locally, and personally, you know what I need? I need direction from God. I need him to lead me. I need him to guide me. 
And I will not find that direction in any other way. And if I want him to use me, if I want him to choose me at some point, I have to be willing to say, God, I need you. God, I seek you. Guide my life. Our family was out of town this last week and we were, we were spending some time with some friends and one day we were, we were driving and I was, I was driving our van and my friend was sitting over here in the passenger seat and we were on our way back to where he lived and I, about an hour away, and I literally had no idea where we were going. My bearings were all turned around. I, I couldn't figure out where I was at, and I was just totally relying on him to get us back. So we're talking every so often. He says, oh, turn here, turn there, and do this kind of thing. And all of a sudden, he gets a phone call. It was an important phone call. You could just tell, you know, sometimes you get those, those business calls, and this was important, and he, he dialed in right away. So that meant, and, and I was cool with that because I knew he'd been waiting for this call. I knew that he needed to focus on that call, so we stopped talking and everything, and all of a sudden, I realized I have no idea where I'm going. He was, he was giving me direction. Now I have no idea. Thanks a lot, buddy. I, have, I don't know what to do now. You know what I did? I pulled out my phone. And with the help of Siri, within a couple of minutes, I had directions and I knew exactly where I was going. No thanks to him. And the reality is many of us spend our whole lives trying to get direction from other people. We look for direction in all the wrong places when what God has already put in our hands through his word and by his spirit in our lives will give us the direction that we need in those times when we don't know where to go or we don't know what to do. And instead, we gotta take our focus off of others and determine to seek God. For some of you, the most important thing that you can hear today has nothing to do with Joseph. It has nothing to do with being a father. It has everything to do with the fact that there is a God who loves you and cares about you He holds in his hand, truthfully, the answers to everything that you're going through, the questions you're asking, the decisions you're making. When you look out at your future and it looks foggy and you're not sure what to do, that's why Jesus died on the cross. That's why he gave his life. And scripture says that if you will surrender your life to him, what do we sing today? You can have it all, Lord. And if you'll turn your life over to him, If you'll say, I will make you my Lord and my Savior, then the truth from Scripture is this, that he will lead you and that he will guide you and that he'll direct you in your life. And for many of us, we're so busy either holding on to things on our own or relying on what other people say that we fail to realize that the answer to the direction that we need is just in seeking him. We want our lives to amount to something, but we miss the opportunities because we fail to be the kind of person that God can choose to use. You know what you have to do? Say, God, my life is yours. I seek you. And I think that principle that we see in the life of Joseph plays over into our own lives as well, that if we will say, God, I trust you, and then put that faith into action, he can use us to do extraordinary things that we could not even begin to imagine. That's a characteristic of someone who God chooses to use. God chooses to use those who work hard. God chooses to use those who will seek him. And here's a third thing. God chooses people who will choose people. God chooses people who will choose people. Let me kind of unpack what I mean by that. See, of all the things that you can choose to invest your life in, it could be getting rich, it could be being famous, it could be feeling successful, it could be having things that give you joy. Of all the things that you can choose to invest your life in, if you will choose to invest your life in the lives of others for the glory of God, that's when God can truly use you. Look, this is, this is critically important. I think this is part of Joseph's story that we so often forget or fail to realize. Joseph was doing pretty good for himself. He'd worked hard and he became a carpenter. 
we've realized that's not only a good way to make a living in the first century, but it's also someone who had a certain element of status involved with it. Not only was he a carpenter, but he was a learned sage. He was someone that others looked at as someone who was wise, who had studied, who was educated, who they would maybe even go to for advice in life and about spiritual matters. Joseph had it all worked out. He loved his job. He loved his God. He had this lady he loved named Mary. She was well-respected in the community. People knew her. They liked her. His life was right on track. All of his dreams were being fulfilled. He was going towards what he wanted in life. And then one day, Mary shows up. Joseph, how you doing? Ah, Mary, I'm doing great. I love my job. I love God. I love you. And she says, yeah, about that. Joe, I'm pregnant. And I didn't do anything wrong. It's just that God's trying this little thing he's never done before. And here's what he says. And Joseph says, I didn't sign up for that. I didn't work hard to have whatever this is going on over here. Take me off track from all the things that I'd worked hard for. I'm gonna honor God with my life. I'm gonna work hard. I don't understand what you're saying, Mary. I just know um, I really can't have anything to do with that. And so Matthew tells us that Joseph planned to put her away quietly. He didn't want to disgrace her. But he said, I don't want anything to do with this. Until the angel shows up and says, Joseph, I know you had all these plans. If you don't mind, God's gonna derail them because his plan's better. Instead of your plans, Joseph, I'm asking you to put Mary ahead of what you wanted. I know that if you, if you, if you marry a pregnant lady who's not married, that's gonna mean there's gonna be rumors. It means you may be treated differently by society, but I've got a plan for that lady. And Joseph, you can't even begin to imagine what I'm gonna do through that child she's gonna give birth to. And I'm gonna ask you to step aside from your plans and to embrace God's and choose to invest in them instead of investing in yourself. At some point, if we wanna have a life that God can choose to use, our focus has to go off of ourselves. The reason that Joseph is so important to the Gospels is that he chose God's plan, investing in others, instead of his own. What was, what was the role of a father in the first century in a Jewish home? Two things. First thing that was the role of a father in the first century in a Jewish home was to teach his son a trade, to teach his son how to work hard. Joseph was a carpenter. Does anybody remember what, what job Jesus did? He was a carpenter. Where did he learn that? He learned it from his father. And I believe he, he learned more than just how to hammer and put things together. Joseph taught him the value of working hard, the value of being someone of their word and of character and of integrity. He learned that from Joseph. The, the role of a father in the first century in a Jewish home was to teach his son a trade. The second thing was to teach his son the Torah. What was the Torah? It was the Jewish scriptures, basically the Old Testament in that time. And his job was to teach that to his son. And we already know that Joseph was considered a learned sage. He was a righteous, he was a devout person. He was faithful to the law. He knew the law. He studied it. He was able to teach it to others. Do you remember what they said about Jesus when he was 12 years old in the temple and he's debating with the scholars that were there? Where did this kid get this learning? If you read through scriptures, you find Jesus was a genius, was he not? Do you know where he learned his love for scripture? 
Do you know where he learned to understand what the Old Testament said? Do you know where he got in his heart the idea that there was a Messiah that was coming? He learned that from his earthly father, Joseph. I think oftentimes we think about Jesus as just this little kid who just kind of sits there and God shines his light down on him and there's like this divine osmosis and that's how he learned everything, kind of this, oh, I mean, we think that, right? (laughs) Scripture says that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. So do you know where he learned about the scriptures? He learned it from his dad. Joseph is possibly the most overlooked character in the story of Jesus because Joseph was the one who shaped his early life, who taught him the value of hard work, who taught him the value of God's word. And when you take a father who will shape a child like that and then you put God's plan on that, and believe me, Jesus was was different than you and I, right? Fully God, but also fully man. The role that Joseph played in his life is maybe far more than we give him credit for. And it was because he was willing to say, God, I'll walk away from my plans and I'll embrace yours. That makes all the difference. Which which makes it probably a good time for me to talk to the dads in the room for a minute. Dad, no matter what your age, no matter what the age of your child or your grandchildren, you have a role of incredible influence. I decided I'd do some research and I tried to look up some statistics about the the power of a dad in the life of a child. I was looking for kind of a cool story that I could tell. And the more I looked and the more I read, the more I just kind of got fuzzy in my head and realized this. I could try to impress you with all these things, but the bottom line is something you already know. Dad, you have incredible influence. I see it all the time. I see it in the life of, of kids who begin to take after their dad in good ways. And you watch the way that that father has shaped that child and given them the tools that they need for success in life. I see it all the time in the ways that fathers warp their children. And the things that kids pick up all the time that might not be positive things that they learn from their dads. In fact, there's three of them in my home right now. You see that. Sometimes the reason that you see the incredible power of a dad is when there's been a lack of that. Many would say we're in a crisis of fatherhood in our nation. And I believe in many ways we we see the results of that. Dad, you have incredible influence. And I know that when you talk about something like that on a day like Father's Day, for some of us, what it brings up are painful things. For some of us, and I'm kind of in this camp, Maybe Father's Day is actually just a reminder that you lost your dad. Not too long ago, it just, it hit me all over again. 20 years later, it hit me all over again. How much I miss my dad. You can't replace the influence of a father in the life of a child. It's the way that we're wired. For some of you, Father's Day is a tough day because of that loss. For others of you, it's a tough day, not because you physically lost that father figure, but maybe because you you mourn for what you've never had in that father figure. You wish the relationship was different. Maybe you think of years that have been lost. For some of you, this is a, a tough day, maybe because you're a single parent. Single moms in particular, I, I affirm you today. The way that you carry that, that load of responsibility, that blessing of raising up that child There's nothing um, simple or easy about what you do. Father's Day can have a tendency as a day to stir up all kinds of different thoughts and emotions in us. But no matter what it makes you feel, 
The reality is it highlights the incredible role that a father plays in the life of their child. Matthew chapter two, verse 13. When the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Do you see what happened here? The angel shows up and says to Joseph, run for your life. You know that kid you didn't want? They're gonna try to kill him and probably you too. Joseph could have said, whoa, 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 whoa. I did not sign up for this. This is not what I wanted to do. But what we see here is the incredible example of Joseph's life. See, God uses people who will put others ahead of themselves. God uses people who will put others ahead of themselves. And we also see that God uses people who will be committed to his will. God will use those people who say, God, I I will follow your will. I will put others ahead of myself and I will invest in others. Those are the kind of people that God chooses to use. And you might say, well, that's that's cool, Chad, but I'm just an ordinary person. Look, I'm I'm no Joseph. My name's probably never gonna end up in some book for generations to read about. Sure, I'll work hard, but I've been working hard for a long time and nobody's ever put my work in a display case. And yeah, I'll seek God, but I don't think anybody's ever gonna call me a learned sage. And I'll invest in the future, but most days, most days I feel like I don't have much to offer. And this is not just for all of us. I think the truth is that on a day like today, Father's Day reminds us of some things that are kind of difficult for us sometimes. Father's Day is awesome because we get a little bit of recognition as dads, and we deserve it, right dads? Yeah, thanks. Um, You know, I hope it's a special day for you. Hope maybe you get a gift or you get a card or maybe you get like your favorite meal or something like that. I know every dad is praying for a new necktie, right? That's kind of how it goes. The reality is, and I'm I'm not bitter here at all, but Mother's Day, on Mother's Day, we're usually like, Mom, you're so awesome. You're great. Mom, we worship you. Mom, we wouldn't be here without you. That's kind of Mother's Day. Father's Day is usually like this. Hey, Dad, thanks for all you do. Now try harder. That's kind of Father's Day. Feels like that. And when we, we get together and we pray on Sunday mornings as a team beforehand. And one of the things I said today was, I, I hope that this message doesn't, doesn't leave any fathers feeling like a failure Steve Daly, who leads our, our chapel service, he said, he says, because oftentimes that's how we're portrayed on TV. Have you noticed that about dads? So many times being a dad is just a joke. And the reality is Father's Day can be a reminder that we're not everything that that greeting card said we were. We know that maybe we're not the best dad in the world. The times when we failed our family, times when we dropped the ball, times when we haven't worked as hard as we should have or sought God the way that we might have. Sometimes we think about all the ways that maybe we failed as a man. And you might say, hey, Chad, great message, but it was easy for Joseph. He lived in a very different time. Joseph was really a special guy, and the reality is he had a pretty easy kid to parent, right? 
He was parenting Jesus. Have you met my kids? My kid is not the Messiah. That's what you're thinking, right? It was easy for Joseph. Probably not. But here's my encouragement to you. If you want to be the kind of person that God can use, whether you're a father or not, don't give up. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Jerry said there, don't give up. And when I think about Joseph, there's, there's, there's two thoughts kind of that come to mind at the end. Look, when no one sees what you do, do not give up. Joseph is overlooked. We think very little about him. He didn't know a whole lot of what was really going on at that time. And when no one sees what you do, don't give up. Because oftentimes we're looking for the immediate, right? We want to know, does anybody care? Does anybody realize? Does anybody see what I'm doing? And scripture would tell you, even when no one sees what you're doing, keep working hard, keep seeking God, keep making that investment. Do not give up. When no one sees what you do, do not give up. And when you do not see the reward, do not give up. Because there's going to be times when you're going to go, is this worth it? Should I keep doing this? Why do I even bother? And when you do not see the reward, do not give up. Joseph died without ever seeing Jesus' ministry. He didn't see the thousands come out. He didn't witness the miracles. He died before he knew any of this that was actually going to happen the way that it did. He didn't see it in this life. And for many of us, we might not ever know the full reality of the difference that we may make in the life of another through our hard work, through our seeking God, through the investment that we make. But just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's real. I would encourage you, all of us, do not give up. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. You know what I think is one of the biggest tricks that the enemy likes to use in our lives? To convince us that what we do does not matter. It's just you. It's too small. What difference would it make? My encouragement to you today is this. Do not give up because what you do matters. I told you we were out of town this week. We, we were with some friends who live just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And we were there for a couple of different reasons. And one of the things that we did while we were there was we took advantage of being in the part of our country where really our country began to do some research into the spiritual heritage of our nation. In fact, later this fall, we shot some video that we're gonna show um, that, that will help us to see the spiritual heritage of our nation so that we will be encouraged to pray for our nation, especially in an election year, okay? And um, so part of that was visiting some pretty cool places in our history, which included several really old cemeteries, which my kids were just loving that, right? Hey, kids, let's go to another cemetery. We went to the Bridge Street Cemetery in Northampton, Massachusetts. Do you know who's buried there? Sylvester Graham. Do you know who Sylvester Graham is? He was the inventor of the graham cracker. I am not making that up. 
Without Sylvester, there'd be no s'mores. Can I get an amen? Right? God bless Sylvester. I saw his resting place right there. Not who we went to see, though. I stood at the, the marker for Solomon Stoddard. Unless you're kind of an American history buff, you, you probably wouldn't be familiar with Solomon. Solomon pastored the church in Northampton, Massachusetts for 60 years back in the 1700s. Then he died. Faithful. Did his thing. Didn't realize the influence his life would have, though. He was just a little ways down as, as a marker remembering Jonathan Edwards. You may be more familiar with his name. Jonathan Edwards was the primary mover of the first great awakening in our nation. He was the grandson of Solomon Stoddard. And if you go down just a little bit further at Bridge Street Cemetery, you'll see the marker for Timothy Dwight. He would be the great, great grandson of Solomon Stoddard. And he was one of the primary movers in the second great awakening in our nation. And you can trace it all the way back to Solomon's faithful life that had ripples that affected life after life, generation after generation. And he couldn't have seen it at the time, but his life influenced not just the lives of his family, but I would say actually it influences your life today because of his faithful life before. He didn't see it at the time. I'm just really glad he didn't give up. And look, there's things that God wants to do in your family, Dad. There's things that God wants to do in your work. He wants to do in your life. He wants to work through you. He wants to choose to use you. However, it won't happen if you give up. So whatever you do, don't tire of doing well. Never give up. And I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes as we close this out today. And I just want to pray a simple prayer. And I want to pray for those of you who have thought lately, is it worth it? Does my life make a difference? Why do I bother in my marriage, with my family, on the job, in the neighborhood, with my kids, in the church? Why do I bother? And I want to remind you to never give up. And if you'd say, Chad, would you pray for me? Because I don't want to give up. Would you raise your hand? Just acknowledge that with, with God today. I don't know what it is. You can raise your hand, put it right back down. Yeah, wow. I don't want to give up. Lord, thanks for your word that reminds us of who you are. God, thanks for the truth from scripture that you choose to use us. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to work hard, to seek you, that we would put our own plans aside so that we can invest in others as you direct our lives. But Lord, I pray today for the one that's in this room or that's watching this, that is tempted to give up, to stop, to quit, thinking that no one sees or there's no reward. Lord, may we put our focus on you May we not tire of doing what you've called us to do. And may we never give up. Now, Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. Send us out with your special favor and your wonderful peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.